Hello, church family. How's it going? Great to see you. My name's Chris, uh, and it is great to have you for our, uh, joining us for our online gathering. Uh, if you are uh, new, it is uh, really great to have you. Big welcome to you if you are a part of our church family, then it is great to, you know, air quotes, uh, see you at our online gathering. Uh, and just wherever, whenever you are watching this, uh, awesome, awesome, awesome to have you. It is my joy and privilege to help give leadership to our church family and uh, today to teach, preach the Bible. And so uh, we are, as a church family, in a season, we're kind of celebrating uh, the season of Lent. Lent is the 40 days from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday, where the church really traditionally prepares herself to celebrate the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so in this season where our church has been, uh, you know, distant, we've been, we've been forced to like uh, be physically distant, socially distant, whatever, whatever the word is we're using right now to describe the state of affairs as they are, we wanted to pull together and unify around um, run a bunch of different opportunities as a church. And so Lent is the season where we're calling the church together. We're doing a bunch of different things. We have daily prayer happening. Uh, you've heard us talk about our special giving project that we're going to give to our ministry partners. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff happening. One of the things that, that we've been doing that I've really been enjoying is we've asked the whole church family to walk through this daily devotional that was put together by Andrew and, and some of the staff and leaders at our church. Uh, our community group has been going through it together. Uh, we have a, a chat uh, group, like a WhatsApp chat group, where we go on there and, and we just talk about what Jesus is doing uh, in us and what he's saying to us as we read this devotional. It's just been so deeply encouraging. And so I just encourage you, head over to our website, westvillagechurch.com forward slash Lent. And there's a number of things on there that uh, that are happening all the time. There's some events coming up as we get closer to Easter that we uh, would love for you to participate in. But we just want to call the church together uh, in this Lent season. And part of the season uh, part of the way, rather, that we're celebrating this season is going through a teaching series called Death by Love, where we're really just taking seven weeks to look at different aspects of the cross. Uh, I think I used this illustration last week, but John Stott, who wrote a fantastic book called The Cross of Christ, he, he uses this uh, analogy or this illustration of the, the cross, the, the, the means by which uh, God, through, uh, through Jesus, reconciles us to himself. And he says the cross is like a multi-sided diamond or a multi-sided jewel. And every side of the diamond or the jewel, you get this different perspective to the center of the jewel. And by looking through these different sides or these different perspectives, what you end up seeing is a different aspect of the, the heart of God, a different perspective on his character, on his nature, on his essence, on who he is. And so each week, we've been trying to take a slightly different look at um, at the cross and, and what it means. And, and so today, our, our angle, our perspective is what is called a Christus exemplar, is the kind of theological nomenclature. But really, that's just fancy talk to make me sound uh, important. And what it means is Christ as our example. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, when we talk about this idea of of Jesus being our example. I think it's something that we're, we're all very familiar with. I mean, we, we use this language at our church all the time, right? We want to be like Jesus. We want to give like Jesus. We want to serve like Jesus. We want to sacrifice like Jesus sacrificed. I mean, it's something that we're very familiar with. If you were around in like the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, I don't think this is a thing anymore. It's not a thing in my world. Maybe it is still a thing and I'm just aloof. It's very conceivable. Uh, I have been told that um, I am not with it by my kids many a times, but, but back in the day, if you will, there used to be these bracelets that people would wear, right? And it had a, had a little, um, an acronym on it, WWJD, which stood for what would 
Jesus do? Great, great question to ask. But again, this idea that we are we are called to like be like Jesus, look like Jesus, live like Jesus. Um, even non-Christians have a sense that Christians are supposed to, in a very real way, use or live as as uh, or look to, I should say, Jesus as an example. I mean, a lot of people actually walk away from the church, reject Christianity because Christians are hypocrites, right? They'll, they'll say things like, you know, you don't look anything like Jesus. Your lives don't look like Jesus. You follow Jesus, but this is what your life looks like. In other words, you're not doing a good job of looking to Jesus as your example. Uh, Gandhi had this quote. He's famous for saying this. He said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Uh, throughout the scriptures, like time and time and time again, we are called to look to Jesus as our example. I'll just rattle off a bunch of texts here really quickly, but 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Peter writes, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, which we're going to look at in a few minutes, the Apostle Paul writes, in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, the Apostle Paul again writes, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, the Apostle John writes, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And then even Jesus himself, his invitation to us is one of followership. It's one of looking to him as our example, where he says, come and follow me. He says explicitly, he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, our lives are to be a mirror of the life that Jesus lived. But what does this actually mean? What does it actually mean to be an imitator of Christ, to look to Christ as an example. I mean, regardless of your religious convictions, I mean, you might be listening to this, you're not a follower of Jesus, you watched, uh, you saw this shared on, on, on a social media timeline and you're just tuning in because uh, you think that I'm handsome or something, I have no idea. Uh, but uh, the, the reality is, regardless of your religious convictions, everybody in some way, shape or form holds Jesus up in high esteem. Right? We look to Jesus and we think, He's kind of a big deal. Like he's 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 different than the average human being. So so what does it actually mean to follow him? For him to be our example. John Piper, who uh, is a pastor in the states, a theologian, he wrote a fantastic book called Fifty Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die," and he has an entire chapter on this this um, this idea of Jesus being our example. And he has a quote that I want to share with us. It's a lengthy quote, but I think it's helpful in framing up this conversation. And here's what he writes. The first line right out of the gate is fantastic. Here's what he says. He says, imitation is not salvation, but salvation brings imitation. I'll read that again. That's tweetable, hey? Imitation is not salvation, but salvation brings imitation. Christ is not given to us first as a model, but as a savior. In the experience of the believer, first comes the pardon of Christ, then the pattern of Christ. In the experience of Christ himself, they happen together. The same suffering that pardons our sins provides our pattern for love. In fact, only when we experience the pardon of Christ can we become, can he become rather a pattern for us. This sounds wrong because his sufferings are unique. They cannot be imitated. 
No one but the Son of God can suffer for us the way Christ did. He bore our sins in a way that no one else could. He was a substitute sufferer. We can never duplicate this. It was once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, divine, vicarious suffering for sinners is inimitatable. In other words, it cannot be imitated. Christ's sufferings for our justification makes possible our suffering for the proclamation of the gospel. Our suffering for others does not remove the wrath of God from them. It does, however, show the value of having the wrath of God removed by the suffering of Christ because it points people to him. Our imitation of Christ, therefore, points people to him who alone can save. Our suffering is crucial. It's crucial. But Christ's alone saves. Therefore, let us imitate his love but not take his place. In other words, what John Piper is saying here to us is that our call as followers of Jesus is not to take the place of Jesus, uh, right? We're, we're not to try and be Jesus for people, but rather it is for us to imitate Christ, to look to Christ as our example, to, to be like Christ, so that our lives would actually be in a, a living epistle of the sacrifice that Jesus made for our sins and for their sins. Now, when we start to talk about Jesus, this is where where it becomes so important that we we kind of do a little bit of a little bit of work in order to properly understand Jesus because if we don't properly understand who Jesus is, then we will it, it will hinder our ability to actually look to him and follow him as our example. And a lot of times, once we start to talk about Jesus, there's, there's a number of errors we can make. I want to highlight two that I think are, are the most pronounced and perhaps the most problematic as it pertains to what we're talking about today. The first significant theological error that, that we can, or trap, I guess, maybe is a better way to word it. The first significant theological trap that we can fall into is that we can see Jesus merely as a good man. Now, let me, let me be very clear uh, about this. Jesus was indeed a great man. Uh, But many people look at Jesus and they neglect to see anything mysterious or supernatural about the life that he lived. They look at his life, they look at his death, and they see nothing about it that is significant other than it's just another good life. Jesus was a moral teacher. He was a philosopher of sorts. He was a religious leader. But to call him Uh, God, to call him anything beyond just somebody who lived a good life, who led a good life, who provided a good example for us would be be wrong. Uh, We we see this all throughout history, right? If you were to go back and um, work through history, you would would hear stories of of Thomas Jefferson, for example, one of the founding fathers of the United States who, who had a Bible on his nightstand. And what he would do is he would take his Bible and he would actually go through it and he would cut out the passages of scripture uh, that had anything to do with any supernatural activity. And he did this specifically with the life of Jesus. And so he would take out any instances where there was virgin births or where there was healings or where there was uh, miraculous events, any, any talk of a resurrection, it would all get taken out of the Bible. And what was left was this humanistic, this secular humanistic 
version of Jesus. And that's how Thomas Jefferson viewed him. And that's a really good analogy to describe how a lot of people think of Jesus. They think of him as merely a good man. Uh, They think of him as uh, somebody who hasn't done anything significant other than just lived a decent life, but he is nothing more than that. Uh, This is common for sure outside of the church, right? Many non-Christians view Jesus this way. I've already quoted Gandhi once. I'll quote him again. Uh, He famously said, Gandhi did, Jesus's death on the cross was a great example to the world, right? Because he was a great man. That's what, so Gandhi's getting after here. But there was, uh, but that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, my heart could not accept. So many people look at Jesus and they think he was a great guy. He was a great moral teacher, he was a great philosopher, great religious leader, but he was nothing more than that. But the problem is that that, that is not just outside of the church. That actually can happen inside of the church, uh, especially right now in the moment we find ourselves in. I would, I would describe one of the massive problems in the church right now is there is a lack of theological depth in our preaching, in our teaching, in our pulpits, in our ministries. I mean, I hope that's not the case here, right? I try really hard as a church. We try really hard to teach the Bible faithfully, to be faithful to the scriptures, to be robust theologically and to think theologically about things. But this is not the case. And in many liberal denominations in particular, especially many mainline denominations, although it's not it's not just mainline denominations any longer that can be accused of this, but what we see is that they have a very low view of Jesus. They really start to emphasize more the justice aspect of the ministry of Jesus. So they love to highlight that Jesus was for the poor. They love to highlight that Jesus loved the marginalized. And don't get me wrong, he did indeed love the poor. He did indeed love the marginalized. They love to highlight the fact that he, he fed uh, the hungry. But when it comes to his his death on the cross and his resurrection, what ends up happening in these liberal denominations and in these churches that are are not thinking theologically robust, what ends up happening is Jesus' death on the cross gets reduced down to this, this poor victim, Jesus, who died at the hands of rich, wealthy oppressors. And they have this low view of Jesus. He's been reduced to merely being our example. That's all he is. He's just our example, but he's nothing more. And here's the problem with this view of Jesus. If, if we're to view Jesus in that light, that he's, he's merely a man, he's merely our example, then, then what we're left with is a Jesus that does not have the power to save us. He does not have the power to save us from our sins. He does not have the power to save us from the brokenness of the world. He does not have the power to reconcile us back into a right relationship with God. And so where does that leave us as people? It leaves us having to save ourselves. So where we end up now is trying as hard as we can to be as good as we can because we really, really, really want to make God happy. And we've actually taken the gospel and we flipped it completely on its head. Instead of God being loving, gracious, and kind, and us receiving his mercy, we are the ones who are now loving, gracious, and kind. And we're doing it so that we can earn God's love and mercy. Now, don't get me wrong. There are truthful aspects to to some of what I've what I've said here as it pertains to Jesus, but for this to be the fullness of who Jesus is is woefully inadequate. So that's the first error. 
or the first trap that we can fall into, an overemphasis on the humanity of Jesus. The second theological error, though, and this is probably one that's a little bit more relevant to, to our church, is this. It's this idea that we can overemphasize the divinity of Christ. Now, that might seem, uh, that, that, that sentence, overemphasize the divinity of Christ, might seem, uh, you know, a little bit like, whoa, wait a minute here, Chris, what are you talking about? But let, let me just flesh this out. For many of us, we, we have this view that when we look at the life of Jesus, we kind of view him not as the God-man, but more as Superman. What I mean by that is this. Uh, if, if you watch Superman, you know that uh, you have this character by the name of Clark Kent, and he's sort of this like nerdy uh, newspaper reporter who you know was kind of bumbling around and always making mistakes. But then something really bad would happen, and Superman would need to come on the scene, and Clark Kent, this nerdy, uh, you know, bumbling reporter would find himself in a phone booth and he would take off his reporter's outfit and underneath his reporter's outfit was the, you know, the blue suit with the red tights and the S on his chest and the cape. And now all of a sudden he's Superman, right? Goes and saves Lois Lane, saves the day, and he's the big hero. But for many of us, this is actually how we view Jesus, right? We, we look at Jesus as this kind of humble, marginalized Galilean peasant. We look at him and think, man, yeah, similar to the, the liberal denominations, we have this kind of low view of his humanity, and whenever we see Jesus do something significant in the Gospels, whenever we see him healing or performing miracles or, or doing anything, we equate that to his divinity. We equate that to Jesus, you know, taking off his bathrobe, so to speak, and, and having like this Superman costume underneath his bathrobe. And he claims his divinity, and it's the power of his divinity that allows him to do all the things that he does. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. If we view Jesus this way, if we view him merely as God and we view him distinct from his humanity, then we find ourselves with a God that we can't relate to. We look at Jesus and we can't actually identify with him. Or more importantly, he doesn't identify with us. He doesn't identify with us in our brokenness. He doesn't identify with us in our, in, in, in our hurt and in our pain. He doesn't identify with us in our longings. Because everything we see when we read the pages of the gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus is really, it's just, it's just Clark Kemp being Superman. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says this of Jesus. He says, in Jesus, we have a great high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness. Listen to what he says. Because he is like us, he's been tempted in every way. If we overemphasize, if we fall into the trap of overemphasizing the divinity of Jesus at the expense of the humanity of Jesus, we lose, we lose this great high priest. We don't look at Jesus and see him as someone we can pray to. We don't look at him and see him as somebody who can comfort us in our brokenness, who can meet with us in our loneliness because he's so far off in the distance. Tim Keller has this line where he speaks of Jesus this way. He says, Jesus, only, Jesus as only an example will crush, he will crush you. If you look at Jesus and all you see in him is an example, he will crush you. You will never be able to live up to it. But Jesus says the lamb, right? The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he will save you. 
And so it's vital for us as we enter into this conversation about what does it actually mean to look to Jesus to be our example, it's vital for us to have a right understanding of Jesus. Now, I just want to go to the Bible here. If you got your Bible, go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we have, I think, one of the richest um, theological passages in the New Testament. There's a lot of really great stuff, obviously, in the Bible. But Philippians 2 is one of those passages we kind of come back to a lot because it's just so chock full of goodness. Philippians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he planted in a town called Philippi, hence the name Philippians. And really what the Apostle Paul is doing, it's, it's, it's stunning. He's helping this church learn how to suffer well. The church is under persecution. They're experiencing hardship. And the Apostle Paul is actually putting out for them exactly what we're talking about uh, today. He's putting out for them Christ as their hope, Christ as their example in the midst of pain and suffering. Ironically enough, the Apostle Paul's writing this from prison. So he himself is suffering. He's writing this from firsthand experience. And here in Philippians chapter two, he does a masterful job of of threading the needle and holding the tension of both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. He doesn't fall prey to either of the temptations or the traps that that we discussed, but he holds these two truths in great tension. So let's read this text. Philippians chapter two, let's just start in verse five. He says this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So again, here's this, this idea that Jesus is our example. And then look at what he says of Jesus, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Uh, And therefore God exalted him in the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What a great text, what a great text. Beautiful words by the apostle Paul. And there's two great truths that Paul lays out here. There's lots of great truths, but there's two that I wanna touch on as it pertains to Christ as our example that Paul lays out here in Philippians chapter two. The first one is this. Paul makes it explicit that Jesus is, he's eternally God. This is what he says. Look at right in verse six. He says, who being the very nature God. So when you look at Jesus, what you're actually seeing is God in the flesh. Right, the, the language, the theological language we would use to describe this is the incarnation. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. We talk about Emmanuel, right? God with us. This beautiful picture of the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, actually taking on flesh. That word incarnation, we we use it, you know, to, to get our word concarne, right? Chili concarne is what we would call chili with meat. I'm not sure what chili without meat is. I think we call that like a wasted meal or salad or I don't know, it's something. Just It's something you throw in the garbage. That's what chili without meat is. But chili con carne is chili with meat. The incarnation is God with meat, God with skin on. Apparently, God was not a vegetarian. He took on flesh, though. That's what we see when we look at Jesus, what we're actually seeing, what we're looking at. We're looking at this reality that God, the eternal God, from eternity past to eternity future, took 
on flesh. He enters into human history. This is how the Bible explicitly talks about Jesus. And this is how Jesus explicitly speaks of himself. And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He's not saying Jesus was like God. He's not saying Jesus was a God. Look at what he says. Verse six, it's really important. Jesus being in very nature God, very essence of who Jesus was, he's God. He is God. The second thing that the Apostle Paul lays out so clearly here is that this Jesus, who was eternal, eternally God, was also, also a person. He, he came as a human being. Look at the second half of verse 6. Well, let's just read all verse six, who being in the very nature of God. So Jesus being in the very nature of God, look at what he says now, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, this is really important. Notice the language Paul uses, right? Look at, put your pretty little eyes down on the second half of verse six. He says that he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself, verse seven, he made himself nothing. Uh, the way that theologians have understood this, it's not that in Christ, God, uh, Jesus rather ceased to be God. It's that he set aside, he didn't cling on to, he let go of for that moment. He still, he was still in essence or ontologically God, but in this moment, he set aside the advantage that he had as God so that he could come in the flesh. So not only was Jesus fully God, but he was also fully man. And what we see in Christ is the perfect unification of these two realities. The perfect personification of these two realities of, of God and man coming together. It's the personal union of these two natures, the nature of God and the nature of man. And this is actually why we refer to Jesus as the God-man. So what is the relevance of all of this, right? Like, how does this actually, uh, like, what is, how is this actually significant to us as we seek to live with Christ as our example? Well, he, well here's the reality. We, we have to do the hard work to properly understand who we are talking about when we talk about Jesus. If we don't do the hard work of giving that, that, that idea of who Jesus is, the personhood, the deity of Jesus, we don't fill that out for ourselves, what ends up happening, and we have to fill it out with the proper thinking, with letting the scriptures inform our ideas, what will end up happening is that we'll start to import our own ideas onto Jesus, and then we have bad theology leads to, leads to wrong living. And so for us to properly look to Jesus as our example, we have to properly understand who Jesus is. And so what I want to do now is I want to just walk through the gospel of Luke. Because in the Gospel of Luke, what we see is this picture that is painted for us of the life of Christ. But what I want us to see as we look at the life of Jesus through the lens of the Gospel of Luke is that Luke is extremely intentional about how he describes the life of Jesus. And Luke has a particular emphasis all throughout his Gospel where he emphasizes the power of the Holy Spirit on Jesus, the Holy Spirit leading Jesus, the Holy Spirit 
um, empowering Jesus, enabling Jesus, guiding Jesus. And what we see in Jesus is the perfect example of a spirit-filled human being. What it looks like, because what we see in Christ is this spirit-filled human being who lives in perfect submission to God the Father. And that's our call as Christians, is to live a life that is perfectly submitted to God. And Jesus is the example of that for us. He is the perfect example of that for us. What caused, what allowed, what gave Jesus the ability to remain obedient to his heavenly Father, just as the Apostle Paul says, even obedient to death, death on a cross. Wasn't that he a big S underneath his Palestinian bathrobe? It was that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was Spirit-filled. The Spirit led him, the Spirit guided him, the Spirit walked with him from his birth right up to the cross and into his resurrection. And that's what we see all through the Gospel of Luke. If you were to go to, we won't go to all these verses. We're just going to do a flyby of a whole bunch of scenes in the Gospel of Luke. But if you go to Luke chapter 1 and 2, what are we going to see? We're going to see right at the very, very beginning of the Gospel of Luke that Jesus was conceived. How was he conceived? By the power of the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that, that overshadowed Mary and that led to the conception of Jesus. Even Jesus' name, Jesus the Christ, literally means anointed one or anointed by the Spirit. You go to Luke chapter 3 and we, we see this scene where Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, baptizes Jesus. And, and what happens at the baptism of Jesus? We get this, we get this beautiful picture where, where Jesus comes up out of the water. So here we have, uh, we have God, second member of the Trinity, God the Son, and we, we see him coming up out of the water. Then we hear the voice of, of God the Father, first member of the Trinity, right? Speaking over the Son. What does he say? He says, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. And then we see the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, appearing as a dove, on Jesus. And we see the full manifestation of the Trinity right there. Now, why does the Holy Spirit appear as a dove? We, we don't know the answer to that exactly. But all, what we do know, what most theologians would say, is that the Holy Spirit appeared in, in physical form so that it was obvious and demonstrable that Jesus was being set apart. And he's being set apart for ministry. He was being anointed and filled with the power of of the Holy Spirit. Then immediately after Jesus' baptism, in Luke chapter 4, we are told that Jesus was completely filled with the Holy Spirit. And then what we see is that, that Jesus was led out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. Now think about this with me for a second. You would think that if Jesus was living a life of perfect submission to his heavenly Father, if he was perfectly filled with the Holy Spirit, if he was walking in full obedience to God, that his life would be this functionally charmed life, right? Like, that's what we think. We think if we walk in obedience to God, that, that we're going to be blessed, that, that if something bad happens to us, it's probably because God's mad at us. But what we see in Jesus is that this perfect human being, perfectly filled with the Holy Spirit, perfect, living in perfect submission to his heavenly Father, is led out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by Satan. 
And the reality is for many of us, we have been told a lie about what God is like. There is so much, I've already alluded to this, but it's worth repeating. There is so much bad teaching and preaching that is accessible to us. And probably right now more than ever with, with internet church and you know stuff all over the place, we have access to more teaching than we've ever had access to. And the reality is many of us are listening to stuff that isn't helpful. We've been, we're listening to teachers and preachers who are telling us that if we live by God's principles, it will go well for you. God will bless you. God will, uh, you know, God will make your path straight. God will, will make everything work out for you. Friends, this is at, at best, this is bad teaching. At worst, this is, this is demonic. I mean, just think about what happens to Jesus, right? Again, perfectly filled by the Holy Spirit, perfectly submitted to God the Father, goes out to the wilderness. And what is he tempted with by Satan? What is Satan tempted with? Power, wealth, prestige. The very same thing that we think we can get from God if we walk in full obedience to him. So here we have the example of Jesus where he walks in full obedience to the Father and it leads to him being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days by Satan by the very things we think we can get if we obey God. We not see how backwards this is. But the reality is that, that God's heart is not necessarily merely to make us happy, but it's actually to make us holy. It's actually to conform us to the image of Jesus. And sometimes, actually often, <laughs> oftentimes, our happiness, our temporary happiness, it's an, it's an impediment to the work that God wants to do in our lives. I mean, if this last 12 or whatever months it's been that we've walked through this global pandemic isn't an example of that. I don't know what is. I know I've prayed a lot more in the last 12 months than I did before all this. I know I've had to trust God a lot more than I did before all this. Why? Because so many things have been taken away. I got nowhere else to go. When my hands are full, when my belly is full, when my bank account's full and my hands are full, do you know what I don't have room for? Jesus. But when there's need in my life, when I need, I go to him. It's possible to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be walking not in perfect obedience like Jesus, but in obedience to God the Father and still get, to, still get led, the Holy Spirit led. Still be led out into the wilderness. Uh, then further in Luke chapter four, we see that Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And then he goes into the synagogue and he stands up and he preaches his first sermon, quotes right out of Isaiah 61, where it says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. And then from, from that point forward, from Luke chapter four onward, what really what Luke has been doing in those first four chapters is setting up the reality for us that, that Jesus has been set apart by the Holy Spirit to live and walk in full obedience to God the Father. And then everything from that point forward is this picture of what it looks like to be spirit-filled, humbly, perfectly submitted to God the Father. And we see Jesus do remarkable things. Uh, we see Jesus healing and casting out demons. How does he do that? He was filled with the Spirit. And some of us will ask, well, can we do these things? Can we heal? Can we cast out demons? And 
And many of us would say, no, we can't. Only God can heal. Only, only God can do it. And Jesus was God. So that's how he would do it. But do not forget that Jesus was also a man. Remember what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2. He did not allow himself to be advantaged by his deity. And so there is this reality for us that we have to grapple with. That we have literally been commanded by God. We've been commanded by him to pray for healing. This is what we're told in the book of James. That we actually, not we, not you, not me, we have no power in and of ourselves, but the Holy Spirit working through the church, through his people, actually has the ability to heal people. We have seen people in our church family healed before. This just happened, and I don't know how this all works, okay? Like, I'm a little bit confused about this too. But we literally had someone just a few weeks ago who had a fairly significant injury. I won't share the the personal details, but they had a fairly significant injury, one that we were thinking, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't going to be good. I mean, it it appeared as if this individual was going to need to go in for emergency surgery immediately. They put a call out for prayer. A number of people prayed. He got better. I don't know what to do with that. Went in, talked to the doctor. I was like, I'm not sure what to say. You're better. Way to go. Go have a good day. What is that? I don't know. I don't know. But here is what I do know. Holy Spirit can do anything. The same spirit that we're talking about is the one that was hovering over the water at the creation. Could he not? Heal somebody? Oh, we're told that Jesus calmed storms. How did he do that? It was the Spirit. It was the Spirit working through Jesus that calmed the storms. Now, here's, here's what you're asking, right? Like, do I actually possess the power to have control over the weather? No. No, you do not. Neither do I. But in 1 Kings chapter 18, we get a picture of the prophet Elijah who prayed for rain. And guess what happened? It rained. Did the prophet Elijah do that? No, of course not. The Holy Spirit did that. Now, was there, is there something, was there something unique about the person of Jesus? Yes, of course there was. But friends, do not discount the fact that the Spirit of God can work through his people in remarkable ways. Uh, we see that Jesus raised both Lazarus and Jairus' daughter from the dead. How? The Spirit. The Spirit did it. If we prayed in faith, could God do that? I have to say yes. In John chapter 14, Jesus literally tells his disciples that they will be able to do greater things than even he was able to do. Let me ask us, how powerful do we believe the Holy Spirit is? There's a really easy way to tell. What do you trust him with? What do you ask him to do? How much do you lean on him for power? How much... Do you go to him for wisdom and guidance? We're told in Luke chapter 10 that Jesus was full of joy in the Holy Spirit. His joy wasn't found in his circumstances. It wasn't found in the people around him. His joy was found in his relationship with his heavenly father and with the Holy Spirit. Let me ask us, aren't we glad that we have somewhere that we can go 
Aren't we thankful that we have somewhere that we can go where we can actually find joy? I mean, just think about the moment we're in right now. There's so many people who are desperate for joy. They're hurting, they're suffering, they're in pain, they're scared, they're wondering. Because everything that they have gone to for joy has been taken away. We can go to the Holy Spirit. We can actually have the presence of the Holy Spirit with us. For so many of us, we think that if we can just get somewhere that we will we will experience joy, right? If we can just, if I could just get, you're single, if I could just get married, then I'll finally be happy. Only single people think that, <laughs> right? You might not have kids. You think if I could just have kids, then I'll be happy. Only people without kids think that. But you might be thinking to yourself, when this pandemic's over and I can have people over, when I can gather with my church, when life goes, you know, quote unquote, back to normal, then I will be happy. But here is the reality. Jesus found joy in the presence of the Holy Spirit, and we have the presence of the Holy Spirit actually living within us. And it's that presence of the Holy Spirit that we have access to all the time that can provide us with joy. Why are we going everywhere else when we, we just have to stop and listen and pray to the Holy Spirit and be filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit and experience joy. Jesus literally says in Luke chapter 11 that you can come to your Father in heaven and ask, and he will give you the Holy Spirit. If we fast forward to the end of the life of Jesus, we see in Luke chapter 23 that Jesus suffered so greatly. He was betrayed by his friend Judas. He was denied by his closest disciple, Peter. All his friends abandoned him. The night before he was to go to the cross, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, and he was in such anguish that he literally sweat droplets of blood, praying to his heavenly Father, so aware of the suffering that he was about to endure. He had lies told about him. He had people mocking him. He was stripped naked in front of a crowd of people, including his own mother and family. He was humiliated. And then all alone, all by himself, he goes to the cross. He goes to the cross and he suffers and he dies. Let me ask us. Let me ask you. Have you ever asked yourself this question? How did Jesus get through this? Friends, it was the Spirit. It was the Spirit that empowered Jesus to remain obedient to death, even death on a cross. It was the spirit that gave Jesus the ability to utter the prayers in the garden the night before. And Father, if you can't take this cup, then not my will, but your will be done. He didn't white knuckle it. He didn't you know, pull himself up by his bootstraps. He didn't just play the God card. He was led and empowered and filled and sustained by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask us, are we in pain? Are you in pain? Are you struggling right now? Are you alone? Do you resonate with what Jesus felt as he was going to the cross? Look at me. Look at me. You don't have to be alone anymore. 
Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit is our comforter and he is with us. John Stott, who I've cited a few times already, said this, in the real world with all its pain, how can we worship a God who is immune to it? Friends, a life of obedience to Jesus is not a life that is guaranteed to be free of pain and hardship. In fact, it's the opposite. If you're going to follow Jesus, then every single step of the way, we are going to be conforming more and more of our lives to the likeness of Christ, which means more and more of our flesh and our self is going to have to die. It's going to have to be crucified. That's what the Apostle Paul says, crucify the old man. And every step of the way, we are going to need the power of the Holy Spirit to be imitators of Christ, to follow the example of Christ. And after Jesus was on the cross, he was laid in the tomb for three days. We're told in Luke chapter 24 that he was raised again to new life. How? Paul tells us in Romans 8 that it was the Spirit of God. And he says in Romans 8 that it's the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead that dwells in us. The same spirit that rose Christ from the dead dwells in us. Some of us, were living lives in our own strength and in our own power, and we cannot figure out why we cannot overcome the battles that are in front of us. Why can't I give up my porn addiction? Why can't I, why can't I love my wife? Why can't I stop yelling at my kids? Why am I a workaholic? Why am I always angry? Why am I, why am I always frustrated? Why am I always battling with anxiety? And it's for many of us, not all the time, but for many of us, it's because we're living in our own strength and within our own abilities. When the Apostle Paul says that the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the Holy Spirit actually dwells within us. And he wants to work in and through our lives if we will just humble ourselves and submit to him. And then what we see is that Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is all about how the Spirit of God worked in the early church. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, just before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says, he promises that one will come after him. The Holy Spirit will come and will, will fall on the church and there will be power because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? It happens. And the book of Acts is a long story of the church imitating the life of Christ, preaching the gospel and people coming to faith, healing people, performing miracles, churches being planted. And we see the church living the kind of life that Jesus himself lived. How? In the power of the Spirit. So, so here's where I want to close. What are we to do with all this? What are we to do with all this? Here's my invitation to us, to press into the Holy Spirit. If we are going to look to Christ as our example, if we are going to be imitators of Christ, then we need to press into the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 1 verses 13 to 14, he says, and you, were also, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, listen to what he says, you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, he's been placed in you, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's 
possession to the praise of his glory. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is that we have the same spirit that Christ had. It's been given to us, the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, is in us. Here's where I'll end with a simple question. Is it possible that right now, at this moment that we find ourselves in, right now, what God is doing is shaking us. He's shaking his church. He's shaking you. He's shaking me. He's bringing us to the end of ourselves so that we have nowhere else to go but to press into him and lean on the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I believe God is positioning us as a church. He's positioning his people all around the world right now for something beautiful. If we will just stop and listen to his voice and hear what he wants to say to us and not get caught up in the fray, not get caught up in the political fray, not get caught up in the pandemic fray, not get caught up in the our rights fray, but listen and look and press into and receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Where else do we have to go? What else do we have to do? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, these are unprecedented times, but I believe in unprecedented times, you are doing an unprecedented work. And so we ask that right now you would do that. Speak to us, we pray. Fill us, your people, we pray. May we be willing to hear you, to follow you, to listen to you, to be empowered by you. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen. Amen. Thanks, church.